Hello and welcome to the latest Guernsey Green Finance podcast, which is rated one of the top 10 most useful sustainable finance podcasts by Green Finance Guide. Guernsey is one of the jurisdictions leading the way in green and sustainable finance. And as part of this podcast series, we'll be speaking to and learning from some of the leading global figures in the field. My name is Rosie Alsop. I'm Communications Director at We Are Guernsey. That's the promotional agency for Guernsey's finance industry. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Michael Urban, PhD, who is Deputy Head of Sustainability Research at Lombard Odia Group. Michael received his PhD from Oxford University and after extensive work as an academic, he's now interested in building bridges between scientific research and industry. Towards the end of last year, he led a research process with Lombard Odia in conjunction with the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment at the University of Oxford. It's called Predictors of Success in a Greening World. And I'm very much looking forward to discussing this and more with him now. Welcome, Michael. Good morning, Rosie. It's a pleasure being with you. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, No problem. It's great to have you with us. Now, I think we should start off by introducing you to our listeners. So maybe you could tell us a bit about your personal backstory, uh, how you went from studying and working as an academic to the transition into the commercial sector and your um, work with Lombard Odia. With great pleasure. So actually, um, I I started my career in industry. So I I went to business school and after business school decided I wanted to work in finance because I thought the financial sector was so immensely central to a number of topics beyond just financial and economic questions, but also environmental and social ones. And I worked as a product specialist in the mutual fund industry, uh, covering thematic equity long-only investments. That was back in 2008, which was an interesting time to start a career in finance, <laughs> yeah. um, with Lehman Brothers going bankrupt about a month after I joined. Um, and I stayed on in, in this role for about three years. Um, and I was overseeing at the time uh, um, a range of mutual funds that were labeled as socially responsible investments. And I thought the topic was absolutely fascinating. And I thought there was already actually considerable amount of awareness in the industry about the importance of sustainability, but just a general lack of momentum and not necessarily the kind of traction that made the topic as exciting as it is perhaps today. And so at the time, I thought, if I want to explore this in depth, um, I need to go back to university and study. So I did a master's in environment, politics and globalization trying to tie together uh, my knowledge of the financial sector, as well as questions that related to sustainability. I thought it was so fascinating to study, and I went to do that in, in the UK. And I, I'm Swiss originally. Um, also absolutely loved the, the UK um, university system and went on to do a PhD at Oxford, as you said, um, and, and actually was, was really sort of fell in love with scientific research and so stayed on and did another another four years uh, working as a researcher on a project financed by the European Research Council titled Finance and Development in the 21st Century. Now, fast track all the way to uh, November 2020. Um, Generally, the more I was doing practitioner conferences and the more I thought there's actually really something that's picking up now in the private sector when it comes to sustainable finance. And some companies in particular uh, including Lombardia, really taking this to the next level, 
with now not only actually really asking, uh, I think, the right and the important questions when it comes to sustainability, but also having a lot of potential in terms of addressing those questions at scale through capital reallocation that made the opportunity to join Lombardier uh, an extremely exciting one. And so I joined um, Lombardier with two key responsibilities. Uh, one of them is to manage our existing partnership that we have with the University of Oxford. And uh, maybe I can say a few more words about that in, in a moment. Um, and also lead our thematic research, um, which links back to, to my previous experience and some of the research work I've been doing in the recent years. Thanks for that great introduction. So let's cast our minds back to uh, the end of last year and COP26. Lombard Odia uh, hosted the Zero Hour Sessions event, which was attended by our Head of Sustainable Finance at Weogonzi, Steph Glover. Um, Steph said that Professor Johan Rockstrom's keynote speech on his groundbreaking work and planetary boundaries was the highlight of her COP. Uh, with both Mark Carney and Faith Ward, Chief Responsible Officer for Brunel Pension Partnership, agreeing that everyone who works in financial services or manages money should be required to watch at least one of those talks. Um, can you tell me some of the key takeaways from the sessions that stuck with you? Yeah, absolutely, with pleasure. So we've, we've, done, we've done a number of sessions. Um, generally, the key topics that we wanted to cover um, whether race to net zero, as well as give a perspective on nature and specifically what nature can do in the race to net zero. And I think that's an important topic in the sense that increasingly, although we still have this divide between uh, the, the COPs that are focused on climate and the COPs that are focused on biodiversity, I think there's really an increasing realization, um, not just in the scientific community, but also in the financial sector, that actually questions related to environmental challenges as well as environmental opportunities are very much interlinked. And what I'd say really was the key takeaway for me across all of these sessions that we've run at COP26 and some of the discussions we were part of uh, is that um, really sustainable finance needs to be rooted in, um, in science. There really is a need for a science-based approach to understanding uh, those environmental dynamics, and to then be able to build and make some connections with how certain environmental dynamics are affecting economic systems, but also how economic systems are affecting those, um, those environmental dynamics. And that, for me, is really the key takeaway. I think that's a very good point, actually, about the um, climate and biodiversity being, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but sort of two halves of the same coin, really. Um, and I'm also excited to discuss your research with you. But before we get to that, I think it's worth sticking on the topic of COP26. Um, it's important that the major pledges remain very much in frame. Now, a common theme at COP, as with many of these supranational events, is how we can unite jurisdictions to combat climate change. And I'd be interested to know what role you think Guernsey uh, and other similar global finance centres have to play in transitioning the global economy into a sustainable force. Sure. Yeah, that's that's a it's a very interesting question, and I think it's you know there's there's sort of there's endless debates between 
you know, you were talking about two sides of the same coin when it comes to nature and climate. And in a sense, you can make a similar argument about the economy and the financial sector. And there's sort of endless debates about, you know, sometimes the financial industry talking about the real economy needing to align with net zero in order for the finance sector to actually deploy capital towards those projects that would be aligned in the first place. But actually also the counter argument, which is that the real economy complains about not having access to sufficient financial means in order to actually enact on a net zero objective. And the reality, at least for me, is, is probably something that fit somewhere in the middle. They're very much, again, the, the, the two sides of the, same, of the same coin. And there is a real need for the financial sector to work together with the real economy to actually redeploy capital towards projects that can enable the transition to net zero economy. I'll give you that um, one statistic. There's probably around a five trillion US dollar need in new investments to facilitate the energy transition alone. And that, of course, is something that is pertinent for the real economy, where, those capital, where, where, where this capital is actually needed on the ground, but is, of course, also incredibly important for these organizations and financial centers, those ecosystems that actually facilitate the redeployment of capital. And obviously, as you know now, you know, finance is increasingly global, um, and, and I think, you know, key financial sectors across the world, including Guernsey, uh, have absolutely a fundamental role to play in this redeployment and facilitating the redeployment of capital uh, towards the net zero economy and even a nature positive economy, which perhaps is a topic for, for further discussion. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point. Now, as mentioned previously, you published some research in conjunction with Lombard Odia and the Smith School of Enterprise in the Environment at the University of Oxford. And one of the key findings was that some of the world's major economies, including the US and China, are the nations that are set to benefit the most from a transition to a green and sustainable global economy. Um, Michael, can you explain a little bit more about how that is the case? Yeah, absolutely. So maybe just to just to frame the study, um, if you if we go back to COP, um, if you go back actually to COP fifteen, back in so that's the Paris Agreement, um, uh, COP twenty one, excuse me, but in twenty fifteen, um, that's the signing of the Paris Agreement in twenty fifteen. At that time, the uh, global economy was on a trajectory of worth for global warming of around four to six degrees. Now, if we look uh, at a picture just before COP26, uh, the economy had realigned itself with a warming trajectory of around three degrees. So considerable progress, but still very far off. Um, the Paris Agreement objectives of two degrees and actually especially the 1.5 net zero objective that is really now what we have refocused most of our efforts on. And that what came out of COP26 is actually commitments that would set us on course for 1.8 degrees of global warming. So the very first time that we dip under two degrees as set by the Paris Agreement. Now, what happens as the global economy realigns 
with a different warming trajectory, you end up with swath of economic activities that are actually at risks of no longer being meaningful, purposeful in an economy that would be aligned with net zero, as well as swath of economic activity that very much enable that transition and could very well benefit in the process. And so that, in a sense, is the kind of background for the study that we've conducted together with Oxford. And here, so the, the key objective was to look at over the last 25 years, a slightly longer time frame, um, what actually, what economies around the world have basically been capitalizing on the transition um, I, I just described by competitively um, positioning themselves in, in global trade for complex green products. And by complex, I mean technologically sophisticated green products. And so what the study does is unpacking over the last 25 years, which out of 150 countries have been the winning, the winners, sorry, as well as the losers of the green transition. I see. Okay, that's fascinating. Now, what are the implications of this for investors who are seeking to invest in clean energy, but also for those who are currently invested in brown or transitioning assets? Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. So what we've done is at the macro level, we've actually um, derived two key indicators. One we called green complexity index and another one a green um, complexity potential. That effectively allows you to rank countries over time, but also GCP, green complexity potential, is a leading indicator of how countries are likely to fare in the future. So going back to some of these key findings, we found that Germany is actually very much um, on, in the lead uh, when it comes to its evolution over the last 25 years. But we've also seen a pretty incredible uh, rise of China in the ranks. But also, China is really showing some very, very promising signs to uh, further rise up to the very top of, um, of the, the main trading economies and producing economies of green complex products in the future. Now, in terms of implications directly for investors, so there's sort of this is a this is a two-part kind of story. One, there's a question of this macro context and really thinking about what are the countries that are well positioned to produce high value add green technologies in the future. And there's of course also on the macro context level some thinking around what trade relations and current tensions with trade relations. What those, what those trade relations actually mean for how competitive countries might be in the future. Um, to give you a practical example, so we know that according to the International Energy Agency, by 2050, uh, about 90% of our energy production should come from renewables. That's a massive scale up from around 10% today. And if you look at the corporate context, you see that um, as of today, China is actually producing a lot of the raw uh, materials, but also some of the key parts from this wind and solar value chain that is so important to the scale up of renewables in the future. And if you think about the ongoing tensions between China and the US, as far as trade is concerned, you can start really sort of thinking about pretty significant implications 
perhaps for, for the US more than for China, which has an absolutely enormous domestic market when it comes to demand for wind and solar products. Wow, that's a, a lot of food for thought there for investors. Um, Michael, were there any other findings from the report that stood out or that surprised you? Um, yeah, perhaps one, one key sort of more surprising finding for me particularly because I'm, I'm, I'm originally from Switzerland. I, well, I grew up there and, uh, and I was very curious to see how Switzerland would come up in, in the results. And it was, it was at first slightly puzzling for me to find that Switzerland has actually declined over the last 25 years in terms of its um, level of competitiveness in global trade for green products. And we, we started sort of looking into the data and trying to figure out what was going on there. And actually, after speaking to a number of people and people involved in policy in particular, we've realized that. Of course, what the study is really capturing is a question around manufacturing green technologies. Now, that's not the only way economies as well as specific cities uh, can capitalize on the green transition because, of course, there's also a very buoyant demand for green services. And so that is really specifically what we would call um, finance and advanced business services, which of course is fundamentally important to the Swiss economy and very important for Guernsey as well. And what we find is that as part of a strategic positioning of the Swiss economy, moving away from a green manufacturing economy and actually capitalizing on green services and particularly green financial services, Switzerland has managed to really position itself as a leader in uh, green finance. And that shows, in a sense, as um, also a story of decline in, in the manufacturing space. So it's perhaps more a reallocation of um, the workforce and what the economy is focused on, rather than simply a net loss for the Swiss economy. I see what you mean. Um, now, focusing on predictors of success and circling it back to Guernsey, um, where do you think Guernsey lies? So I, I looked at the data to see whether we actually have uh, data specific for Guernsey, and unfortunately we don't. But I can tell you that considering the makeup of Guernsey's economy, which is, um, well, in a way, it's, it's similar to Switzerland, if not even uh, more importantly influenced by its financial sector. Um, so it's just looking at economic statistics, and it's, as, as you'll know, of course, better than I do, but... About, about a third of the economy, if not slightly more, is financial services, and probably up to two-thirds, if not, well, between 50% and two-thirds of the economy is finance and advanced business services. So I, I really think that actually what I was just describing about Switzerland's evolution of the last 25 years and its potential moving forward as being positioned in, um, as a leader to, uh, to facilitate the green transition when it comes to the redeployment of financial capital um, is a very valid point for Switzerland, but is also a very valid point for Guernsey. Absolutely. Now, as a global finance centre, the island's in a particular position to provide assistance um, to those lagging in the transition efforts. Do you think Guernsey should be looking to partner with those jurisdictions in some capacity to provide uh, capital flows their way? Um, or do you think that's something that they can solve by themselves? 
So I, I think it's, you know, finance is increasingly global. And when you look at global capital flows today, there is actually tremendous opportunity to help jurisdictions that might not necessarily have um, the kind of access that Guernsey might have in terms of raising green finance. Um, it is, of course, also a question of um, skills and expertise, which I think, you know, leading global financial centers that are good at scaling up those skills and expertise in the green finance space uh, uh, can really, really actually turn that into a competitive advantage for themselves, but also uh, help facilitate the green transition. Well, that's good to know that uh, we you know, have a part to play. Um, and it sounds like a fantastic piece of research. I'm very grateful to you for sharing your insights. And just for our listeners, you can access that research in our show notes. Um, I'd like you to tell me a little bit about what you're working on next um, and how your partnership with Oxford University works. Can you tell me what you're currently working on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so maybe just to tell you a little bit more about how the partnership is structured. So there are sort of three key pillars to the partnership. So it's a multi-year partnership, which um, when it was set up, allowed to endow the Lombardier Professorship in Sustainable Finance. This is a professorship that's endowed in perpetuity at the University of Oxford. Uh, and that, of course, is a key contribution to research production, but also research dissemination uh, in sustainable finance. Now, um, there's also two, two other pieces, which I guess relate to research production and dissemination, but in the context of how we actively partner with the University of Oxford. On the education side, um, one thing that we are working on is to uh, deliver custom courses for our clients as well as our investment professionals on key subtopics um, of sustainable finance. We've done the first last year uh, with a group of institutional clients, um, and the course was focused on the race to net zero. We've delivered the teaching um, in collaboration with Oxford. Um, so we've had key faculty members coming in and present uh, some of the key aspects around climate science, decarbonization, but also physical risks to the audience, and then provided also an implementation perspective, uh, sort of providing a better understanding of how this climate science actually impacts financial decision making. And so we're now working on uh, expanding those education courses uh, for further groups of clients uh, across Europe, um, and both for our institutional as well as our private clients. So that's on the education side. And then on the research side, I think, you know, the, the report that we just briefly discussed, Predictors of Success in a Green World, uh, is a prime example of the kind of work that we're doing together with Oxford. Um, but we're also doing a, a number of activities, including um, having access to panels of experts to peer review the methodologies that we develop at Lombardier. Um, that includes the methodology that we recently developed for uh, measuring the alignment of investment portfolios with the objectives of the Paris Agreement. Um, to give you one more example of the work that we're currently doing on the research side, we are developing a 
um, a methodology that allows us to track deforestation in real time and attribute deforestation to individual assets that can then be linked to corporate entities so that we actually have a better sense of on the ground without having to go through corporate disclosure, what, what is driving deforestation and who's responsible for it and have a good sense of um, that, that attribution with direct observations using satellite imagery. So something we mentioned earlier was Professor Rockstrom and his work on planetary boundaries. Michael, can you explain, uh, for those who don't know, what those planetary boundaries are and what the implications of exceeding those boundaries are for the finance sector? Absolutely, with pleasure. That's a, it's a great question. So the planetary boundaries framework are effectively tells you across nine um, Earth systems, what are the thresholds past which we risk the resilience of our environmental system and more broadly, um, and more broadly societal systems? So to give you a, a very practical example, so one of those planetary boundaries is climate change. And we know that for climate change, past one degree worth of warming, which we crossed, by the way, already, um, we reach a zone of uncertainty. And in that zone of uncertainty starts to accelerate certain manifestations of climate change, including uh, floods, heat waves, cold waves, hurricanes, and so on. Now, that zone of uncertainty for climate extends all the way up to 1.5 degrees. And that's effectively why the net zero challenge is set at 1.5 degrees. This is the maximum limit uh, that we have set ourselves in order not to end up in the danger zone. Past 1.5 degrees, uh, we know that there's actually quite a lot of uncertainty of what would happen in terms of those physical manifestations of climate change with very probably some catastrophic outcomes on an environmental, but also a social and, of course, an economic um, level. So planetary boundaries does sort of replicates that thinking, not just for climate, uh, but for other Earth systems that are absolutely fundamental to the Earth resilience. And those include ocean acidification, which actually is a product of um, our greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, there's also agrochemical pollution, so nutrient cycles, phosphorus, nitrates, the use of pesticides as well with um, um, <clears throat> toxic release of pollutants, um, freshwater overuse, deforestation, and of course, uh, an all-encompassing planetary boundary, which in many ways is affecting and affected by all the ones I just uh, mentioned, which is biodiversity. Uh, so given how central solving the biodiversity crisis is for combating climate change, uh, this year Guernsey Green Finance is going to have an increasing focus on how we can support growing biodiversity movement. Um, what particular issues with respect to the environment and climate are Lombard ODL going to be focusing on in the coming year? And uh, Michael, maybe you can tell me a bit about what it looks like uh, in practice in terms of developing new financial products and services. Yep, absolutely. 
and I'll, I'll link that to uh, what I was explaining in relation to planetary boundaries and climate change in particular. So now, again, the climate science tells us quite clearly about what is that planetary boundary, what is that threshold that we should not exceed uh, in order to keep uh, our climate stable. Now, the work that we have done at Lombardier essentially looks at how can we translate that into information that's meaningful for investment decision making. And the way we've approached this is actually take that very same approach, which is this notion of temperature rise, but be able this time to assign a temperature rise metric to individual companies and entire portfolios in order to get a sense of how aligned or misaligned a given business model or an entire portfolio or an entire investment strategy might be with our climate goal. And so we're now capable of measuring the implied temperature rise of 23,000 companies. And we do that at a very context-specific granular level, sort of having a, a, a depth of understanding of the decarbonization trajectories for different type of subsectors and sub-industries. So to give you an example, if you take food companies, for instance, um, there are now some decarbonization pathways for the food sector as a whole. Now, of course, if you take a company that manufactures cereals, its challenges as well as its opportunities to decarbonize its business model is going to be very different to a company that produces beef products. That's true in terms of industrial context. Now, the same can be said about geographical context. If you take a steel manufacturing company in Asia versus a steel manufacturing company in Europe, here again, the opportunities and challenges to decarbonize that particular economic activity will be fairly different because of geographical constraints. And so the methodology that we've developed uh, really seeks to take into account those decarbonization challenges and opportunities to get a quantified notion of how aligned or misaligned individual companies as well as portfolios are with the climate transition. Moving forward, uh, the research work that we are doing is now converting that notion of alignment, which actually is a good proxy for impact, the impact that a company might have on climate, um, into a value, a more systematic valuation exercise. What is the financial implication of being aligned or misaligned with a certain climate scenario? And that's something that we call climate value impact. Ultimately, this is work that we would like to extend beyond climate to look across the nine planetary boundaries I was uh, talking about earlier to derive a notion of the valuation effect uh, of alignment or misalignment across those nine planetary boundaries. Sounds fascinating. Now, finally, given your extensive knowledge on sustainability and finance, how do you think um, workforces can upskill to enable practical sustainability skills within the finance community? Um, what are the sort of skills that you and sustainable finance industry would look for? Yeah, that's it, it's a very good question. And it's interesting because you find, I think, today that the labor market when it comes to sustainable finance is still sort of is 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 shaping up but it's it's shaping up in various ways and it's very interesting to see that 
different firms have taken different recruitment strategies, some of them looking at sort of hiring people that might have more uh, mainstream financial and economic backgrounds and then train them up in-house to gain the sustainability expertise. Um, in a way, this is um, this is slightly differentiated from what we have done here at Lobarodier, which is to really build in-house um, a team of people that have dedicated sustainability expertise in the first place that then can feed uh, research and expertise into the wider organization. So today we're a team of 27 individuals uh, with backgrounds in climate science, engineering, geospatial analysis. Uh, some of us, of course, having also worked in the financial sector uh, and build careers in the financial sector as sustainability experts. But I think the key thing that we are looking for today in uh, people for joining our team and joining our organization more broadly is a, a capacity to work um, or, or think interdisciplinary. And, and I think this is important, not just in industry, but it's also very important in, in academia. We see increasingly a number of fields, including economics and finance, starting to really start to starting to really build bridges uh, with other scientific fields of inquiry like uh, climate science. Um, and, and I think that's that's extremely important moving forward. That capacity to build links. Uh, between disciplines, scientific disciplines, as well as uh, different um, different areas of practice. Absolutely, that uh, interdisciplinary. Um, it, yeah, I, I absolutely see where you're going with that. Now, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining us. I've particularly enjoyed hearing about your research and how Guernsey fits into that picture. I'd also like to thank you for listening to today's podcast. We have quite a back catalogue of interviews and panel discussions on the Guernsey Green Finance podcast channel, and you can check them out by searching for Guernsey Green Finance wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review or a comment. Uh, we always love to get your feedback. And you can also find us at guernseygreenfinance.org and wearegernsey.com. You can interact with us on Twitter at gsygreenfinance and at wearegernsey. You can hear more news and developments coming out of Guernsey's finance industry on our sister podcast. Check out We Are Guernsey on your preferred podcast platform. We'll also have links to Michael Lombard Odia and the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment at the University of Oxford social media in our show notes. So check those out to hear more from them. And we'll be back soon with another edition of the Guernsey Green Finance podcast.